Well, shalom. As we jump into Acts chapter 10 this week, I want to start off by first asking you a question. If you had one piece of paper and only one hour on which to write the last decade worth of history, what items would you include? (laughs) That's a fundamental exercise, isn't it? Now, obviously, there has been way more history that has happened in the last 10 years than what can fit on your single piece of paper, right? And that's the, that's the complication and that's the frustration that historians often experience when trying to write about history. And Luke, our historian here, who's writing the book of Acts, no doubt is experiencing that frustration. Like any history book, Acts is not exhaustive, right? Luke did not include everything for us in our early movement in the first 30 to 40 years of our movement in this book, obviously. What Luke is doing for us, he's preserving the key moments in our movement's history. Now, some of these moments are purely historical in nature, but many are theological, meaning they inform us what the early followers of Messiah believed and how they interpreted prophetic passages. Prophetic passages like Isaiah 49, verse 6, it says, Untatika leor goyim meaning, I will give for the nations, like light for the nations, uh, this deliverance, and it will reach to the ends of the earth. Or Isaiah 59, I'm sorry, Isaiah 57, 19. Shalom, shalom, la rachok ve la korov. So peace, peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Meaning that I will give shalom even to those who are beyond the, the familial uh, relationship of the people of Israel. Malachi 1.11 attests to this as well. My name will be great among the goyim, the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles, says the Lord Almighty. So these kind of passages are floating around in the theological atmosphere, so to speak, of the first century Jew. They're on the mind, they're on the, the, the imagination of the first century Jewish world. So how do we get there? And, and, and in addition to that, there's also this problem where baked into first century Judaism is this um, tense disassociation of Jews from non-Jews. And this is fossilized um, within the Jewish faith by the time of the first century. And, and this is a divide among racial lines. But it may be well-intentioned and may be Torah-inspired disassociation and laws and codes and restrictions and prohibitions, but they are almost entirely, completely man-made prohibitions. But these, these prohibitions where a Jew was not to associate with a, a non-Jew, they were to prevent an unintentional or intentional idol worship in the home what we would call Avodah Zarah. Now, Avodah Zarah was something that was going on within many Gentile homes. It was a, it was a, the home was like a, like a place of worship. Many homes would have a little shrine or they would, they would bring home meat that has been offered to a false god in a local temple or, and they would eat that meat in recognition and honor of that false god. Uh, It was also these, these codes and restrictions about uh, associating with non-Jews was to prevent intermarrying because if you intermarry with non-Jews, then eventually your family line will become polluted by uh, idol worship and you will assimilate into this pagan culture around you. It was, thirdly, it was to prevent an observant Jew from eating food that was not kosher, like wine. 
or meat sacrificed to idols or something that is just treif, like, you know, like pork or some kind of seafood or shellfish that is not kosher. We would call this bishul akum, which is like, bishul akum is like that which is prepared by an idolater. You do not want to eat that. And one of the ways that you refrain from eating that is not going into the home where that, that, that food is eaten. Uh, this, fourthly and lastly, uh, it was to prevent the Jewish worshiper from becoming richly impure and unable to bring offerings into the temple. So you have to remember that uh, purity in, in the Jewish world is, is, is of the utmost importance because that is your ticket into the temple courts to bring the offerings to be able to go in to pray alongside the Kohanim is of utmost importance. And maintaining that ritual purity is, is vital to, to the ability to do that. And you have to remember that during these times when the book of Acts is written, the temple is still standing and the ability to do that is still there for, for a Jewish worshiper. So obviously, not going into the home of a, a, of a Gentile is definitely one way in which uh, you could perhaps preserve that ritual purity. So this shows up and manifests itself in a couple different, couple different ways, historically speaking here. This, this racial divide shows up amongst uh, rabbinic literature, very early ancient rabbinic literature in the Mishnah, perhaps. Um, in, in Tractate Oholot, uh, chapter 18, verse 7, it says, The dwelling places of non-Jews are unclean. How long must the non-Jew have dwelt in the dwelling places before them to require examination? Forty days, even if there was no woman with him. It also shows up in Mishnah Avodah Zarah, chapter 2. A woman may not seclude herself with Gentiles because they are suspected of engaging in forbidden sexual relations. And any person may not seclude himself with Gentiles because they are suspected of bloodshed. A Jewish woman may not deliver the child of a Gentile woman because in doing so she is delivering a child who will engage in idol worship. But one may allow a Gentile woman to deliver the child of a Jewish woman. Similarly, a Jewish woman may not nurse the child of a Gentile woman. But one may allow a Gentile woman to nurse the child of a Jewish woman while the Gentile woman is on the Jewish woman's property. So you can see this is, again, floating around in the, in the, the culture, in the, in the religion, and the faith of the Jewish people of the first century, for sure. This, this, uh, this, this very intense and strict disassociation with non-Jews. This also manifests itself in the actual structure of the temple itself. Around the court of the Gentiles in the temple, if you look at it like a diagram or a map of the temple as it, st as it stood on in Jerusalem, there was about a three-foot wall called the Soreg. And the Soreg was the dividing line between, uh, it was as far up as a Gentile worshiper could come um, before entering into the temple courts. And there was, in fact, these placards that were all around the Soreg um, that had multiple languages inscribed on them, and they read basically, no, let no foreigner enter within the parapet in the petition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death. So if you crossed, if you're you a non-Jew and you crossed the Soreg, you were liable for your death. It's pretty intense, right? So this, um, this, this racial divide and this disassociation of Jews with non-Jews uh, it's so important that we keep this and, 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 and it's, we are cognizant of this racial divide as we read through the book of Acts. See, our movement started off primarily composed of observant Jews who were steeped in the Torah-inspired, yet man-made prohibitions such as these. Nowhere in the Torah does it say that you know, a, a Jew or Israelite is supposed to completely disassociate with a, a non-Jew, especially if they are loyal to the God of Israel. 
And we're going to see how that comes up later. But Peter, one of the pillars of our movement, the way, is no exception to this. But let's jump into the book of Acts, chapter 10. And this is going to, um, this is going to be about 10 years into our movement. So we're talking about um, around the late 30s, perhaps, and some even dated as, early, as, as late as the uh, early 40s. So we're looking at maybe 39 to 41 AD that these events are transpiring. So Acts chapter 10. So there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius. He was a Roman officer in what was called the Italian Regiment. Now, Cornelius is one of the seven centurions uh, mentioned in the New Testament, and all seven are mentioned favorably. He was a devout man, and he was what we call a phobomenos, which is like a God-fearer. Phobo, obviously, is like a, a fear, and he had a fear of God. Now, God-fearer was a subclass of worshipers. They were monotheistic, yet Gentile worshipers. They worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They practiced elements of the Jewish faith and observed elements of Torah law. And it says, as was his whole household, he gave generously to help the Jewish poor and prayed regularly to God. Now, you have to understand that this would have been very unusual for a centurion, someone of you know military class and of his rank. These, these guys are the backbone of the Roman army to have uh, essentially left and abandoned the Roman uh, pantheon of gods, the Roman cultish religion that was so ingrained in Roman culture, and instead um, become faithful and loyal to the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One afternoon around 3 o'clock, which is a, a, a scheduled prayer time in the Jewish faith, he saw clearly in a horama, and this is like a, it might be a vision, but Horama is, it's like where we get the, the word smellorama, um, perhaps where we get the word aroma. This is something that uh, tends to be a pretty physical experience. In other words, it's not a metaphysical or out-of-body kind of experience. So anyways, in this, in this vision, an angel of God um, coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at the angel, terrified. What is it, sir? He asked, your prayers, replied the angel, and your acts of charity have gone up into God's presence so that he has you on his mind. Now, this is, we talked in the past about how in the Jewish faith, giving charity before prayer is a very customary thing to do. And it actually, there's this idea that uh, giving charity, giving tzedakah prior to uh, going in to pray elevates the effectiveness of your prayers. So we see that kind of playing out here in Cornelius' life as well. And he says, Now send some men to Yafo, which is 30 miles to the, 35 miles to the south, to bring back a man named Shimon, also called Kipha. He's staying with Shimon, the leather tanner, who has a house by the sea. So these are two port towns, Caesarea uh, to the north and Yafo, 35 miles to the south. They're both positioned on the Mediterranean coast. They're both port towns. Caesarea is going to be uh, the... Uh, kind of the governing capital for the Roman occupation. Okay, so this would be like um, for those who know about you know history of the war in Afghanistan, for instance. This would be like the Bagram air base of the Roman army. And um, Yafo is a smaller port town, a more ancient port town, also on the Mediterranean coast. And he says. Uh, now, send some men to Yafo to bring back a man named Shimon, also called Kepha. He's staying with a man 
named Shimon, the leather tanner, who has a house by the sea. As the angel that had spoken to him went away, Cornelius called two of his household slaves and one of his military aides, who was also a godly man. He explained everything to them and sent them to Yafo. The next day, around noon, which is a prayer time, a scheduled prayer time, while they were still on their way and approaching the city, Kepha went up onto the, the roof of the house to pray. He began to feel hungry and wanted something to eat. See, this is the key theme. This is, this is key to the, to the overall theme of this vision. Why did Luke preserve this little fact for us that Kepha was hungry? But while they were preparing the meal, he fell into a ecstasis. Now notice this is a different uh, kind of vision than what Cornelius had. An ecstasis is a Greek word that kind of implies this out-of-body experience, out-of-mind experience, where we get the word ecstasy. All right, he's, he's in this, what some translators call a trance, in which he saw heaven opened, and something that looked like a large sheet being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals, crawling creatures, and wild birds. And then a voice came to him, saying, Get up! Kepha, slaughter and eat, kill and eat. But Kepha said, no, sir, absolutely not. I have never eaten food that was unclean, koinos, or akathartos. So he's never eaten anything common or unclean. This is very important to understand that here we are, uh, you know, 10 to 15 years into the movement where post-resurrection uh, uh, and ascension of Yeshua and Peter is still eating a uh, very strict kosher diet where he's saying basically I've not eaten anything unkosher and I've also never eaten anything that's been tainted by idol worship. Some go uh, on to speculate that uh, perhaps Peter was um, either vegetarian or pescatarian, meaning he only ate fish. Very strict diet that he kept. So the voice spoke to him a second time, stop treating as koinos what God has made clean. This happened three times. Now, remember that three times part. And then the sheet was immediately taken back up into heaven. So it's interesting. This is a very Peter-themed vision here, right? Because Peter denied Yeshua how many times? Three times. But he was restored three times as well. And we're going to see the, the theme of three throughout this passage, throughout this chapter. And, uh, and it always points to new life. It always points to resurrection. It always points to like a new beginning. So Kepha was still puzzling. And the Greek word there for puzzling is diaporeo, which is like he, is, um, he, has, he has no way out. He, it's like he's trapped. And some of you maybe have experienced like a riddle or something like that where you're like, I have no idea what this means and it's bugging me and I... It's just haunting my mind right now. I have no way out. And that's, that's the kind of mental puzzling that was going on here within Kepha's mind. He was puzzling over the meaning of the vision he had seen. So in other words, the vision wasn't just straightforward. And Peter's thinking to himself, there's something more to this vision, right? Then um, men Cornelius had sent, having inquired um, for Shimron's house, they stood at the gate and called out, to ask if Shimon, known, uh, uh, known as Kepha, was staying there. While Kepha's mind was still on the vision, on the ecstasis, the ruach, the spirit, the pneuma in, in Greek, said, three men are looking for you. Now let's pause here. The spirit is speaking. Again, we see Luke over and over preserving for us the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He said, get up and go downstairs and have no misgivings about going with them because I myself have sent them. So Kepha went down and said to the men, 
you were looking for me? Here I am. Now, it's a very historic phrase. Like in Hebrew, it's hineni. Hineni is like, here I am. I'm prepared for the mission that you have for me. Very loaded phrase. What brings you here? And they answered, Cornelius, he's a Roman army officer, an upright man, and a phobominos, a God-fearer, a man highly regarded by the whole Jewish nation. And he was told by a holy angel to have you come to his house and to listen to what he has to say, what you have to say. So Kepha invited them to be his guests. The next day they got up and went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Yafo. Now they're about to travel 35 miles to the north along the coast. And we know from Acts 11 that uh, Peter is going to bring six of uh, these brothers with him from Yafo. Now that's important because six is three times the number needed for a valid witness, right? The Torah says that a matter is established on, on, the, on, the, on the account of two to three witnesses. And Peter is bringing three times that many people with him. So as Kepha entered the house, or I'm sorry, I'm going to back up to verse 24. And he arrived at Caesarea the day after that. Cornelius was expecting them. He had already called together his relatives and his close friends. And as Kepha entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell prostrate at his feet. So this is where we get into some, some uh, interesting waters here. Because again, at this time, it was highly forbidden for an observant Jew to walk into the home of a, of a non-Jew. Especially, I would say, uh, especially taboo to walk into the home of a high-ranking Roman officer. But Cornelius met him and fell prostrate at his feet. But Kepha pulled him to his feet and said, Stand up, because I myself am just a man. As he talked with him, Kepha went inside and found many people gathered. He said to them, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and to visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me, where did he show him? In the vision, right? Not to call any person common or unclean. So when I was summoned, I came without raising any question. So tell me then, why did you send for me? So in other words, Peter is like, aha, now I kind of have an understanding what this vision is talking about. I don't fully grasp its meaning, but I'm beginning to see and unlock the meaning of this, this ecstasis, this trance, this vision that I had. And he says, Cornelius answered, three days, again, there's the, your, your three days of travel, three days in between these, three days ago around this time, I was at afternoon prayers, minka prayers in my house, when suddenly a man in shining clothes stood in front of me and said, God has heard your prayers and remembered your acts of charity. Remember the two components of Jewish prayer, right? Now send to Jaffa, Yafo, and ask for Shimon, Shimon, I'm sorry, known as Kepha. He is staying in the house of Shimon, a leather tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately. And you have been kind enough to come to me. Now all of us are here in the presence of God to hear everything the Lord has ordered you to say. Then Kepha addressed them. I now understand that God does not play favorites, but that whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, no matter what people he belongs to. So what Peter is experiencing here is what we call a theological realignment, right? So Peter all his life has grown up with these man-made uh, prohibitions on Jew and Gentile associations. And he's having to realize that uh, this is not of God. And this is, this is standing in the way of the gospel going forth among the Gentile people. Verse 36, here is the message that he sent to the sons of Israel, announcing peace through Yeshua, the Messiah, who is 
Lord of everything. You know that he has been going on, you know, you know what has been going on throughout Yehudah, starting from the Galil after the immersion that Yochanan proclaimed, how God anointed Yeshua from Netzeret with the Holy Spirit and with power, how Yeshua went about doing good and healing all the people oppressed by the adversary because God was with him. So now he, what he's doing is he's sharing the gospel. He's articulating the gospel to this room full of people, this room full of Gentile Romans. As for us, we are witnesses of everything he did, both in the Judean countryside and in Yerushalayim. They did away with him by hanging him on a stake, right? And, but God raised him up on the third day and let him be seen. Not by all the people, but by witnesses God had previously chosen. That is by us who ate and drank with him after he had risen from the dead. Then he, command, he commanded us to proclaim and attest to the Jewish people that this man has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. All the prophets bear witness to him that everyone who puts his trust in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Kiva was still saying these things when the Numa Hagion, the Holy Spirit, fell on all who were hearing the message. All the believers from the Peritome, which is the circumcision, who had accompanied Kipha, were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit was also being poured out on the Gentiles, for they had heard them speaking in Glossaeus. This is this uh, Glossa uh, is like uh, languages, and praising God. Kipha's response was, "Is anyone prepared to prohibit these people from being baptized in water? After all, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, and ordered that they be." baptized in the name of the Yeshua, the Messiah. Then they asked Kepha to stay on with him for a few days. Now, is anyone breaking the written Torah here? Is anyone breaking any commandments of God? The answer is no. What they're doing is breaking down uh, and, and having to rethink and reanalyze man-made prohibitions um, about going into a Gentile's home. Now, We'll see later, unfortunately, in Galatians 2, 11 through 13, that Peter ends up kind of uh, going back on this realignment and caves under some pre-oppressure and um, at one point refuses to eat with Gentiles, even though that they are, they are followers of Yeshua, they are brothers and sisters of Messiah. He refuses to eat with them. And Paul then has to confront him um, publicly be, uh, for that. Um, so in light of this, it's I think it's... We, it's important we go to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verses 11 through 22 and, and get a better idea of how Paul understood this event, how Paul understood um, the role and the mission of the gospel in terms of going to the Gentiles. Um, but Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through uh, 22, Therefore, remember your former state, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised by those who, merely because of an operation on their flesh, are called the circumcised. At that time, you had no Messiah. You were estranged from the national life of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants embodying God's promise. You were in this world without hope and without God. But now, you who were once far off, right? We talked about um, Isaiah uh, chapter 49, Isaiah 57, and Malachi 11, those who are far off, right? That's what Paul is harking on here. Um, but now, you who were once far off have been brought near through the shedding of Messiah's blood. For he himself is our shalom. He has made us both one and broken down the machitza, the middle wall, right? Which divides us. Now he's making an allegory here, talking about that middle wall, that soreg in the temple. 
He has made us both one and has broken down the middle wall which divided us by destroying in his own body the enmity occasioned by the noman, the Torah, the law, with its commandments set forth in the form of dogmason. Now, it's important that we know that this is the word dogmason here. The Greek word, it's, it's always referring, to dogma is always man-made ordinances, okay? He did this in order to create in, in union with himself from the two groups a single new humanity and thus making peace. In order to reconcile to God both in a single body by being executed on a stake as a criminal and thus in killing himself, himself killing that enmity. Also, when he came, he announced as good news, shalom to you far off and shalom to those nearby. Right, that's Isaiah 57. News that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. On the contrary, you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's family. You have been built on the foundation of the emissaries and the prophets with the cornerstone being Yeshua the Messiah himself. In union with him, the whole building is being held together and it's growing into a holy temple in union with the Lord. Yes, in union with him, you yourselves are being built together into a spiritual dwelling place for God. You hear that the, it's just dripping with allegory, right? Talking about this physical wall that divided Jew and Gentile in the temple and these these uh, man-made constructs within Jewish law to disassociate a Jew from a Gentile. And he's saying, Yeshua has broken that wall down. Now, any Gentile that comes to faith in Messiah is to be treated like a co-heir, like a co-citizen of the family of God. It's beautiful, right? Not only that, but being together, being built into a dwelling place for God. Just like we saw in Acts chapter 10 with the Holy Spirit being poured out on Jew and Gentile, that dwelling place, that temple-like language. So some lessons we learn from Acts chapter 10 is that Acts 10 has nothing to do with abolishing the biblical laws of kosher. Uh, And unfortunately, I've heard many and many and many pastors and theologians and writers say that Acts 10 is dealing with food laws. And that's just not the case. That's so undermining the importance and the significance of Acts chapter 10. But it has everything to do with changing Peter's paradigm and understanding regarding non-Jews and their place in this movement. And Luke is saying, aha, this is a key moment in the history of our movement, which I must preserve so that it stays in the text, so that it, it, it goes on for future generations and future followers of this movement that they know that God does not show partiality based on ethnicity. That anyone who ha- has a fear for him and does what is right in his eyes has a place in the kingdom, right? And has access to his presence. So, so Luke is doing a very good thing for us by preserving this, this, uh, this dynamic and this, this uh, uh, exchange here. And I think another lesson from Acts 10 is that God will use visions to communicate truths to us, like we see with Cornelius, like we see with Peter, right? However, these visions, they must be in alignment with his written word, such as the prophets, right? Nothing that happened in these visions contradicted the written word of God. In other words, Peter never did rise and kill and eat something that was unclean. He knows that the God of Israel is not going to contradict his own word, but rather he's trying to teach him a very valuable, deep, significant theological lesson here, realign his paradigm 
that of the desires of the gospel and the redemptive, redemptive desires of our creator. So whenever someone says they have a vision, yet it goes against the written word of God, then I would strongly encourage you to disregard that vision. Thirdly, the God of Israel is not preoccupied with ethnicity. Anyone who is preoccupied with ethnicity needs that realignment. They are off base. They are in error. They are practicing heresy. We should not be preoccupied with people's race. In our movement, we should never place an emphasis on external qualifications, but rather one's willing submission to God's commands, right? 1 Corinthians seven nineteen kind of stuff. So I hope this teaching has encouraged you and edified you in your walk with Messiah. I hope it's um, given you some things to think about, to pray about, and I hope it's illuminated um, a little bit brighter for you the the lessons of Acts chapter 10. We'll see you next week and uh, when we look at Acts chapter 11.